Good morning, Living Word Bible Church. Simon Jackson here. Um, Happy New Year. Uh, I hope that you have a Bible uh, with you, and um, I hope that if you do, you would open it um, if you've been inclined to close it to Acts chapter 6 and 7 as we sit under the Word this morning as uh, God's people. Um, Let me pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. We praise you especially uh, for the gift of Jesus. Father, thank you that uh, in your mercy you've opened our eyes to see Jesus, you've unstopped our ears to hear Jesus, and you've softened our hard hearts to love Jesus. Uh, We thank you, we praise you for faith in Christ and for freedom in Christ, forgiveness in Christ. Uh, So we praise you for the great gift of Jesus. We pray now as we think about your word that you'd help us to know what it means to receive Christ as the greatest gift of all uh, and to live for Jesus and to love like Jesus, uh, to be like Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder, how was your Christmas? Uh, Perhaps it feels like a long time ago. How was your Boxing Day? Um, I love Boxing Day. Um, How was your new year? Uh, Was it mostly good? Um, I suspect for some of us the parties kind of continue on a little bit into January. Um, For me, it's all about, you know, kind of watching cricket, um, making the most of the beauty of January, this sort of beautiful downtime that everyone seems to kind of embrace. I really like this time of year. Um, For a lot of us, right, the days after Christmas, including Boxing Day, um, is an opportunity for us to kind of collate all the gifts that perhaps we got just before or on Christmas Day and work out what are we going to do with them. Uh, Which are the gifts that we will actually use beyond the first or second week of the new year? What are the other gifts that maybe we'll sneakily kind of rewrap and re-gift Boxing Day is one of my favourite days, Um, you know, it's a day where I sort of feel like after Christmas you just put your feet up and there's no responsibility, there's just, it's a good time just to relax. There's all kinds of theories about Boxing Day and what it was or is and how it came to be. Um, One theory was that it was the day where leftovers from Christmas Day were kind of boxed up and given as charitable gifts to the poor and the needy. I think that's a really good idea. Um, Another theory was that uh, that it was a day where you would box up gifts for faithful workers who'd served you um, throughout the year. Um, So you would box a gift for your butcher or your baker or your fruit and veg person. Uh, Probably in our day and age, it's, you know, you box up a gift for your barista. Uh, That's what I'm thinking. Of course, in our day and age, um, some of us use Boxing Day as an opportunity to re-box those gifts and work out which ones we will kind of maybe take back to the shops in return. And yet, of course, we know, right, that the real gift of Christmas is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We're hardly going to box him and return him, are we? Uh, We've been given the wonderful counsel of the Prince of Peace, the mighty God. God himself has come to dwell amongst us. He gets us, he's served us, he's lived in our shoes. He's taken on our trials and our pains and our joys and our sorrows. He shared in it all so that Jesus might save his people from their sins. We have the one who is the saviour 
of the world, the Lord of all, the King of kings. Now, that's all the terminology that we were using in the lead up to Christmas and at Christmas at City Light Church in North Adelaide. God has shown his favour to us that we might have peace, inner peace, peace with our maker and also joy, deep, lasting joy. We know full well that Jesus is the greatest gift of all. We're certainly not going to return him. But as we start 2021, I want us to think about what is it going to look like for us to take receipt of this amazing Christmas gift. God gave you his son. What are you going to do with that extraordinary gift? To help us answer that, we turn to the life of Stephen, the first Christian martyr that we know of. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. In some parts of the world, like uh, the, and in the tradition that I actually come from, from the Church of England or the Anglican Church, uh, Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, the 26th of December, is known as St. Stephen's Day. And the subtitle in the Book of Common Prayer on St. Stephen's Day is Faithful Unto Death. Seems a really fitting summary of what it means to, to take hold of the life that we're given in Christ, that we will be faithful unto death. So God gave you his son, brothers and sisters at Living Word, and perhaps wherever you're tuning in from today, will you be faithful with that gift? As we look at Acts chapter 6 and 7 this morning, um, and we look at Stephen, I've got three questions that I want to kind of propose to us. Uh, The first question is this, will you be faithful in action? Second, will you be faithful to God on his terms? And third, will you be faithful even unto death? Three questions as we explore Acts chapter 6 to 7. So the first question, will you be faithful in action? I do hope you've got Acts chapter 6 open in front of you. You see, Stephen, um, is his life is characterised um, by faithfulness to Jesus in both word and works, in words and in deeds. Uh, so in Acts chapter 6 verse 5, just, uh, just before the reading that we had this morning, um, Stephen is described as one who is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. In chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen is described as being full of God's grace and power. Uh, the word full there means under the control of, consumed by. So we might sort of talk of someone as being um, you know, consumed with bitterness. Uh, that person is just under the control of bitterness. Not for Stephen. Stephen um, was consumed by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. He's gripped by the goodness and the grace of God. And the work of the Holy Spirit in his life led to faithful action. Um, So when we first meet Stephen, um, he's appointed as a deacon. It's just a fancy kind of Greek word for servant. Chapter 6, verse 5. So in the story of the Bible, um, at this point in time, Jesus has died for the sins of the world. He's risen to life again. Death could not hold him down. He has risen and he then ascended to the right hand of God, poured out the Holy Spirit, and the church is established. And the apostles, um, men who'd witnessed and seen the risen Lord Jesus, um, were now leading the church by preaching and praying and teaching all that Jesus had taught and commanded them to do. And so we find 
Um, in the story, the apostles, they're teaching, they're preaching, they're praying. Lots of people are coming to know Jesus. The church is swelling and growing really quickly. And this growing new body of believers we find at the beginning of chapter 6 has all kinds of issues that are arising, economic issues, physical needs, spiritual needs. Um, and so they bring in some structures into this new growing thing called the church. And the apostles, though, they found themselves a little bit overwhelmed by the needs of all these people that are now forming the church. Um, and it was kind of distracting them from their work of preaching and praying and, and teaching. Um, they knew, the apostles that is, they knew that it was not right to neglect the physical needs of the people. They also knew that it wasn't right to neglect the, the preaching and the teaching and the praying, the sharing of the good news of Jesus. And so the apostles appoint uh, six people plus one, Stephen, to get on with that work of, of caring for the, the physical needs, the economic needs of the people before them. And Stephen excels in that. We read um, in chapter 6 that he did wonderful signs and, and wonders. Um, his faithfulness to Christ meant doing good. But it wasn't an alternative to speaking about Christ, sharing the good news. I wonder if you noticed in chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, we see that Stephen's faithful life and faithful service to Christ got him into all sorts of trouble. I don't know if you noticed that. See, we see Stephen's good works, they are impeachable, and his spirit-filled wisdom and his persuasive words mean that the enemies of him, they're forced, in chapter 6, verse 11, to start making up lies about him because they can't counter him. Yeah, Stephen was commissioned to care for the poor, but he understood that faith in action actually means doing words, saying words and doing works that honour the Lord Jesus. For many in the church today, right, words and works have become an either-or choice. We're either a works church or a word church. Stephen, a follower of Christ, a faithful follower of Christ, saw that the two are inseparably linked. It goes all actually all the way back to how the living God has operated in the world from the very beginning. You go right back to creation, back to Genesis chapter 1. God speaks a word and works come from that and the works that come from the word of God are good, yes? Word and works have always gone together in God's creation for good. And so it is with anyone under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit. God gave you his son. Will you be faithful in action? It's an invitation here from the living God to combine word and works, just like Stephen did. A friend of mine, uh, Interstate, is the leader of a church. And at his church, they have this ministry called Stitch and Mission. It's a quilting group. Um, it's people who get together, stay together, stitch quilts together and make sure that those quilts get passed on to people in need. Um, a friend's church, uh, the my friend's church there, they, they pass on these quilts they make to special needs children. It's a really great ministry. But it's a, it's a great ministry, right, because it's, um, uh, perhaps it's not for me, I'm not much of a quilter, perhaps I can learn that this year, maybe that's a new goal for me for 2021 to learn how to quilt, but um, What's wonderful about this ministry is it's a ministry, Stitch and Mission, which is all about combining the Word of God with works, good works. And so um, 
one of the quilt, uh, quilters in this group said this about the leader of the group. I, I quote, Linda began each session sharing the scriptures and leading in prayer. She wasn't hesitant or cautious about the number of visitors present because those who came along weren't just Christian people. They were just people keen to do good. I think it's a really creative, pardon the pun, way of combining word and works together, turning a passion into something that benefits others and brings glory to God and in the process introduces people to the living God and to the Lord Jesus. So good. Church, I used to serve out in Sydney. We'd have community lunches um, once a month. Uh, we would open the church up, throw this amazing lunch for members of the community, many of whom were disadvantaged, are living in housing trust equivalent properties, not a lot of money, not a lot of opportunity, and we would open the church up um, to have lunch. And it wasn't just simply about giving people some good food, although they got that, it was about giving them a taste of the word of life. And so every lunch, people would sit down, there'd be a short Bible talk, there'd be a prayer, there would be grace. Beyond that, though, there was an opportunity for members of our faith community to sit with members of our broader community and speak into their lives, listen to their stories, and seek to introduce them to Jesus. Um, it's something we're starting up this year at City Light Church in North Adelaide. See, if we're to be faithful in action, let's be aware that we're not separating word and works. I pray for you guys at Living Word that maybe you would find ways to creatively combine passions that you have in meaningful ways that connect with the word and seek to make that known in your particular part of Adelaide. One thing as well we're doing at City Light Church North Adelaide, maybe it resonates with you as well. One of the things that I think we're strong at at our church is our small groups are really strong on studying the Bible and praying for one another, but we're not great at kind of reaching out to people beyond ourselves and particularly into our community. So we're making it a bit of a priority for our small groups this year to think through creatively how can we combine the word with works that do good for those in our particular part of Adelaide, North Adelaide, Prospect, the inner north and beyond. That's what we're hoping to do. God gave you his son, brothers and sisters. Will you be faithful in action, that's the first question. The second one is, will you be faithful to God on his terms? Will you be faithful to God on his terms? You see, Stephen's faith in action, word and deeds, led to his trial and ultimately to his death. And essentially, um, and we cut out the sort of lengthy part of Stephen's speech that he gives in chapter 7, but Stephen's trial before the Sanhedrin, before the leaders of the church, the, the Jewish kind of community at the time, basically circles around faithfulness to God on his terms or on human terms. So Stephen is charged with blasphemy. He's charged because they believe he's not being faithful to God. Now chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. Have a look with me. Um, they set up false witnesses who said, This man, Stephen, never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council, the Sanhedrin, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What's going on here? Yeah, it's a good question. What's going on? Well, Stephen is charged and tried for not being faithful to God. 
for not being faithful to God on terms of religious and legal custom, really on human terms. That is, he hasn't been faithful to God on their terms, on human terms. And Stephen's response to this accusation of not being faithful to God um, is actually more, not really a defence at all. He actually kind of goes on the attack. You read through the speech, it's not really a defence at all. It's like an attack. He, he, you know, according to Stephen, they are the ones who've been unfaithful. They've been faithless to God. So he basically, throughout the whole speech, goes through the history, the key events of the history of God's people, Israel. And he basically says, you know what, guys? You and all of God's people have effectively been unfaithful. You've rejected the way that the living God has revealed himself all the time. So chapter 7, verse 9, he points out how Joseph, one of the earliest saviors of God's people in the book of Genesis, how Joseph was rejected by his jealous brothers, sold into slavery, but through God, through him, God would rescue his people. It's remarkable. So he does Joseph, then he moves on to Moses, another patriarch, another father of the people of God. Talks about how Moses, chapter 7, verse 35 of the book of Acts, was rejected by the enslaved people of, of Israel. But again, he was God's chosen leader and saviour to bring them to freedom from slavery in Egypt. And yet even after they'd experienced freedom from the oppression and slavery under Pharaoh and the Egyptian rulers, this is perhaps the most hurtful point that he brings up, even after they'd experienced freedom and deliverance and exodus and salvation effectively, what do they do to Moses in chapter 7, verse 39? Have a look. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And their hearts turned back to Egypt. After all that God had done for them, after all that God had done for them through Moses, they reject him. And so Stephen accuses them of being faithless, not him. Stephen's being accused of faithlessness, and yet Stephen goes, no, 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 no. Your customs have never been granted in obeying God. They've always been about you trying to fit God into your pattern, your mould and on your terms. It's the history of God's people. You can read it throughout the Old Testament. And then he drives the point home, chapter 7, verse 52, like a nail into timber. Uh, Verse 52, chapter 7. The fathers killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have Murdered. Bam. And he even says to them, right, your defense, even of the temple, your whole temple worship system is just a blasphemous attempt to dictate terms to God. See, God has never been bound to a building, amen? Chapter 7, verse 40 and following, he recounts how God used to travel. Stephen recounts how God used to travel with his chosen people in the wilderness through many countries by first being in a tent in the tabernacle and then, you know, arriving finally in in Jerusalem in a temple. And yet even a temple can't contain the living God. Chapter 7, verse 48. The Most High does not, does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth my footstool. What's going on in this speech? 
Stephen's basically drawing a line in the sand. Whether we will be faithful to God on his terms or whether we'll be faithful to God or are faithful to the terms that we make up. Where we try to squeeze God into our mould, which often just looks like me because it just mirrors all my preferences and your preferences. You see, God has given you his son. Will you be faithful to God on his terms? You know, and if you're willing to do that, it means that you and I will be continually reformed and reshaped by God's word. See, the problem with the Sanhedrin, the problem with basically all of the history of God's people, right, is you know, these ones who tried Stephen, wasn't that they hadn't heard God. Chapter 7, 50, 51, the problem is that they... And this had uncircumcised hearts and ears. They always resisted the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, to call someone uncircumcised is to say that actually you're just like all the pagans out there. You have no knowledge of God. You have no hope in God. You have no relationship with God. That's how they listen to the word of God, says Stephen. Well, sure, they'd heard God's word. They'd read God's word. It was handed down to them, Acts chapter 7, verse 53. But they never received God's word with relationship. They always just made God fit in with them and their agenda, their way of life. It's actually important at this moment to pause and just remember that we ought not to be too smug at this point. See, idolatry, placing something that is good higher than God, is the default mode of all of our hearts. As Calvin says, our hearts are idle factories, working 24-7, finding things for us to find our security, significance in beyond God all the time. We're always inclined to make God fit into our agenda, squeeze God into our terms. Have you ever noticed that when you read the Bible? Now, not all the time, but sometimes that creeps in. It does for me. When we read the Bible, we sort of are drawn to the clear parts, the parts that we really love. And as we read them, we just get this sense of affirmation because we go, oh, yes, that's what I believe and love and, you know, that's comfy for me. The goal when we read the Bible is not just to read the, the, the clear bits, the, the easy bits, the bits that sort of resonate with me. The, the, the role of the, our reading of the Bible is to read it all. The challenging parts, the discomforting parts, the, the less than easy parts, the hard parts. Because when we do that, right, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity for me to let God speak into my life, reshape me, remould me more and more into his likeness and the likeness of his son. You know, a great test that someone taught me some time ago was um, to open your Bible and to start reading a verse and then you get halfway through a verse and then you cover that, the balance of the verse with like either your finger or a bookmark or a piece of paper. And then having covered it, you then try to kind of guess or think about what, how would I finish that verse? And the idea is not to kind of finish it and go, ha ha, look how wonderful I am. I nailed that. I absolutely, you know, know the Bible so well. It's an opportunity, right, for to us to go, how would I finish that verse? And sometimes it's confronting because it's not the way we often would think to do it an opportunity to get us thinking like God, for God to speak into us and surprise us with his word.
So brothers and sisters, again, God has given us his son. Will you be faithful with his son? Will you receive Jesus on his terms? And thirdly, will we be faithful to death? First, will we be faithful in action, combining words and works? Secondly, will we be faithful on God's terms, letting God's word shape and remould us and surprise us that we be more like Jesus? And thirdly, will we be faithful even unto death? If you know anything about Stephen, uh, the most striking thing about Stephen is not so much his life, it's not so much his amazing speech, it's actually his death. It's a very memorable death. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, we find that the courtroom in the Sanhedrin actually becomes a lynch mob. Have a look with me, chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, Stephen's speech, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You see, Stephen understood that receiving Christ was a call to be faithful and to be faithful even unto death. He understood what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 8. I remember Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. They are extraordinary words from our Saviour and Lord. Stephen understood it. I think Stephen comprehended it. He didn't just take it to heart. Stephen copied Jesus in death. You know, there are all sorts of parallels you may have noticed as the Bible was read between Stephen's death and Jesus' death. So the charges of blasphemy against the law and the temple that are levelled at Stephen are pretty much the same charges that were levelled at Jesus. Both the trial of Stephen and the trial of Jesus were basically based on lies and the outcomes were unjust. Both of them were taken outside the city gates to be killed. Hanging on the cross, read it in Luke chapter 23, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said that, he breathed his last. And you see the parallel, Acts chapter 7. As the stones and rocks are pelted at the body of Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And hanging from the cross, what did Jesus pray? He prayed for forgiveness of his murderers, for they did not know what they were doing. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. See, Stephen was so reformed by the the life and the person and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so impacted by the gift of Jesus that he was willing to be faithful even unto death. And here's the thing, right? He simply didn't just die for Jesus. He died like Jesus. 
you know, it's often said, right, around Christmas time, it always comes up, you know, a pet is not just for Christmas, but for life. I wonder, did anyone at Living Word or beyond get a pet this year? A puppy, a kitten? We didn't. I'm not a huge kind of pet kind of guy. But the idea behind the saying, you know, a puppy's not just for Christmas, you know, it's for life, is that someone gives you a puppy, gives you a kitten, it's a lovely present, but it's not just for December the 25th. There's ongoing expectations, right, that you're going to care for it and nurture it and feed it and all that sort of stuff. How much more if you received Christ at Christmas? If we took Jesus, if I took Jesus seriously at his word, we would see that Jesus is not just a gift for Christmas. He is a gift unto death. Jesus is a gift for life. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to to receive Jesus on the 25th of December as the greatest gift of all? What does it mean now to to see Jesus not just a gift for Christmas, but a gift for life? Three, Three things that I think this means for us, to live with Jesus as a gift for life. Firstly, it's this. Daily dying for Christ is ordinary and is normal for us as Christians if we've received Christ. You see, let me say that again. Daily dying is ordinary, it is normal for Christians who've received Christ. You see, Stephen, right? Stephen's life and then his speech and then ultimately his death His death is at the extraordinary end of what is a very ordinary thing for followers of Jesus. It's extraordinary, right? Because not many of us, I suspect, will die, be martyred for our following of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lifetime in 2021. Some of us might. I don't know. You know, 20th century, I'm told, saw um, more martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ than you know, in basically all the years since the church was established before that. But I'm fairly sure that not many of us are going to lose our lives for the Lord Jesus. Um, Not all of us will probably go to that extreme like Stephen did, imitating Jesus in that way. But the ordinary Christian, you and me, we're called to a daily dying. Remember Jesus' words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. He's not saying, you know, you become a follower of Jesus and you must die instantly. You must get martyred as quick as you can. That'll be the greatest thing to do. He's not saying that. He's saying if you you want to come after Jesus, you have to deny yourself. Die to yourself to live for Christ. And so that daily dying to ourselves is normal for Christians. Someone broke it down for me into five S's. Um, Submission, sacrifice, self-denial, suffering, and service. Five S's maybe for you in 2021. Submission, where we, we actively choose to put the needs of others, the rights of others before our own rights. Sacrifice where we give, where we're generous in such a way that it hurts, where we actually feel the cost, we bear the cost of following Jesus. Self-denial, where we, with the help of the Holy Spirit, don't act on our fleshly desires and selfish impulses, and yet we deny ourselves to live for the good of 
suffering. You know, where rather than doing things that we're guaranteed will bring us kind of esteem and accolades and build a good impression in people's minds, actually a daily dying, denying ourselves, living for Jesus means that we are willing, we'll be willing to be mocked and service. We do what, what helps other people inside the church, outside the church. Five S's maybe for you to live out our calling of those who've received Christ as the greatest gift. Five S's, submission, sacrifice, self-denial, suffering, and service. And remember, right, as we probably go about doing those things in our lives day to day, it's unlikely probably that anyone's ever going to notice those things. But guess what? The one, the one who matters will see us doing those things. The one who saved us, loves us, adopted us into his family, the living God. So daily dying is normal. Second quick thing about daily dying, secondly, is this. Daily dying is good because it bears witness to a fuller life to come. So martyrdom, right, being willing to die for Christ, clearly demonstrates that there is something greater to live for than what is on offer in the here and now. That's what Stephen is doing right before the Sanhedrin. In the face of these significant leaders, as they rage with all this power and you need to catch it as they gnash their teeth, what does Stephen do? He looks to the glory of Christ in heaven. Stephen has this incredible certainty in the face of death that leads to a, a willingness for him to die for, with his convictions for, for God. He has this ability in the face of death to, to pray whilst getting pounded with stones and all of this testifies to the fact that he is living for something bigger than this life. There's something worth living for. There's something worth dying for, says, would say Stephen. And therefore, every time that you and I daily die, do those five S's things with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're testifying to the, the people and to the world around us that, that there's something bigger, better and more beautiful to live for. And it's so different to the way our world thinks. Um, again, a friend of mine in Sydney who's a school chaplain at a Christian school, uh, one day was sharing uh, with a group of year 10s the story of Polycarp. Um, he was a second century martyr. Uh, Polycarp was famously tried um, for being a Christian and called you know, in the midst of this trial, you know, renounce your faith in Jesus or you will die. And, and Polycarp responds by saying, you know, 86 years I've served and he has done me no wrong. Shall I now revile, turn my back on the King, the Lord Jesus who saved me? And again, he's threatened, you know, recant your faith or we will burn you. And Polycarp responds, you frighten me with a fire that burns for an hour. You forget the fire of hell that never burns. His chaplain, right, is telling this story to his students, thinking this was, you know, kind of inspirational and, and uh, a story of courage and conviction. And yet the response of the students surprised him. They thought Polycarp was an idiot. They argued, you've only got one life, sir. Hold on to it. See, our willingness to deny ourselves speaks to the world that there is something we value more. And that will, just by living that way, challenge the people and the world around 
point them to Jesus. Thirdly, the final thing, if we're faithful unto death, we will face persecution ready to forgive. Just like Stephen and just like Christ. Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s and 1600s, remarked or said that that the mark of the true church was suffering. I want to say that it's not just suffering that defines the true church. It's how we suffer. The truly faithful like Christ and Stephen inspired by Christ forgive their persecutors. It's striking that Jesus spoke those words of forgiveness while the nails were in his hands and his feet. You know, he didn't say, hey, look, fellas, when you remove the nails, then we'll talk about this idea of offering forgiveness. Same with Stephen. You know, hey, when you stop throwing the stones, then I'll offer you forgiveness. No, it's in the midst of pain that forgiveness is offered. And maybe that'll be seen in the way we pray. I wonder, how do you pray for Richard Dawkins, one of the world's best-known atheists, God's favourite atheist? How do you pray for Richard Dawkins? How do you pray for the colleague at work who mocks you? How do you pray for the friend who has stopped inviting you to, to parties or dinners and things like that because they've found out you're a Christian? How do you... Pray for the family member who's distanced you, who's written you off because of Christ. How do you pray for them? How do I pray for them? Um, I mentioned right at the very beginning that the day after Boxing Day in the Anglican tradition that I come from is known as St. Stephen's Day. And uh, in the little... Book of Common Prayer, 1662, when it was published. Um, There's a little thing called a collect. It's a little short prayer that collects all these wonderful ideas and truths about God into a really short prayer. They're they're quite amazing. If you want wonderful prayers to pray, let me encourage you to find a copy of the Book of Common Prayer and pray the collects. But the collect for St. Stephen's Day is particularly wonderful, I think, in sort of capturing the story of Stephen and the reality of what Stephen did, how he, in the midst of pain and struggle and suffering, prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Let me read the collect for St. Stephen's Day, this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, grant that in all our suffering, in witness to your truth, we may learn to look steadfastly to heaven, and see by faith the glory that is to be revealed, and filled with the Holy Spirit, may learn to pray for our persecutors, as Stephen, your first martyr, prayed for his murderers to you, blessed Jesus, where you stand at the right hand of God, to aid all who suffer for you, our only mediator and advocate. Amen. Is that my kind of prayer? or the people who do me wrong. It's the kind of prayer that the person who's received Christ, seeks to live for Christ,
praise even faithfully unto death. Always seeking to do good to even those who do us evil. See, a constant readiness to forgive our enemies is the mark that Jesus wasn't simply a gift for Christmas, but he's a gift for life. God gave you his son. What are you going to do with that gift in 2021? Will you be faithful? Will you be faithful in action? Will you be faithful to God on his terms? Will you be faithful even unto death? And again, not some extraordinary martyr's death, although that may be the situation for some of us, but a daily dying but witnesses to the fact that the best is yet to come, where we will be with Jesus and enjoy him forever. Will you be faithful? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. We thank you, Father, for the word that you've given us today, Father, this time together to think about the life of Stephen, inspired by our Saviour and Lord's life, the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray again, help us to be more like Jesus, who in all that he did lived for the good of others. And Father, help us to be like Stephen, who in the face of persecution, injustice and trial, prayed for his persecutors, that they too would come to know forgiveness. And we praise you this morning, Lord, that none of us are beyond your forgiveness. Father, help us all to trust Jesus this morning, to keep trusting Jesus as we look forward to seeing Jesus and enjoying him forever. Empower us, help us by your spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name.